Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. I would like to learn more about what we have actually learned about healthcare under President-elect Donald Trump. There has been a lot talked about, about possibly provisions of Obamacare that could be repealed. Uh, but, but I want to dig into what we have learned so far. Susan DeVore, she's the CEO of Premier. It is a company uh, that advises on how to reduce healthcare costs and improve outcomes at hospital systems around the country. Here in the studio with us, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. So what have we actually learned about the concrete proposals that are likely in a Trump administration that could change the outlook for hospitals? Well, we have heard over and over again, repeal Obamacare. And while I think that's legislatively pretty easy to do, the question is, how do we not go back to what we had before Obamacare? And how do we actually take waste out of the system, have consumers involved in their health care, pay for health care based on the value it's delivering? And so how do we replace Obamacare with something that works? Yes, Susan, uh, before uh, President Trump takes over, we still have a a few weeks left of the current Congress and administration. Can we expect anything from this lame duck Congress, uh, or is it just write it off at this point? There is one really important thing that we at Premier think needs to happen in the lame duck Congress, which is how do you make these healthcare systems interoperable? How do you have your data as a patient get connected to all the other pieces of data about you so right decisions are being made. You just talked about big data. Um, The question of interoperability is in a bill, could pass, probably will pass, and could be done in the lame duck Congress. It would move us forward uh, uh, faster. So basically it would force hospital systems to get on a specific grid to sort of change It would force vendors. It would force all of these technology vendors to make their systems talk to one another. It's like having an iPhone that that you can't put any apps on today because none of it can be connected. They need to be forced to connect. What's the counter argument? The counter argument that often uh, they will make is that uh, a patient privacy issue. So you have to make sure you can protect the patient information and the privacy, but allow the patient to have connected information. And if you really want to solve big healthcare problems, like the, the, the problem of stroke, the problem of diabetes, you need population-based data. So you need to be able to c- connect the data at a population level as well. Susan, I think f- for a lot of people out there, the big question is we've seen our health insurance premiums go up year after year, uh, pretty alarming rates, and you know, blame whoever you want on that. Um, President Trump has sort of promised to, to stop that. Um, but the question is, something has to give in the whole chain there. Where do you expect the, the pressure to be uh, focused in a Trump administration as far as lowering prices? What, what sector of, of health care or the insurance industry do you expect to, to sort of come under the most scrutiny? Yeah, so there's no simple answer here, right? This is like a game of Jenga, where you have all these interrelated wooden pieces, and if you pull one out at the wrong time, the whole thing collapses, right? So the question is, <laughs> well, the question is, how do you have all the participants in healthcare uh, participate to to solve this problem? So from the perspective of hospitals and physicians and provider delivery systems. 
they are building value-based systems. They're saying, pay us based on the clinical and economic value we deliver to consumers. Insurance companies have to take all of this regulatory reporting and all of this administrative paperwork out. Um, the suppliers and device companies uh, have to find a way to help us curb the cost of high pharmaceuticals and, and medical devices. Well, you know, I'm looking at uh, Tenet Healthcare's stock, which just plunged in the wake of uh, Donald Trump's election as the next U.S. president. I'm wondering what traders are looking at right now that's making them so bearish on hospitals. I mean, what are they worried about in the, in the new administration? You know, I think what they're missing is they're viewing hospitals as hospitals, and they're not viewing hospitals as healthcare systems. So a lot of hospitals, most of the hospitals across the country have employed physicians, affiliated physicians, nursing homes, surgery centers, and they're taking care of populations, and they can move patients around into the delivery system to optimize the value and to lower the cost. If you look at a more pure hospital company, uh, people are worried about the external pressure on cost in the hospital setting. If you look at an integrated delivery system where they can optimize how the patient is taken care of to lower the cost, that's a different thing. And I think that people are, are pretty short-sighted in just the view of hospital. In other words, just to sort of give some specifics, in other words, having urgy care centers in specific right. neighborhoods or sort of getting targeting high-risk populations and getting them uh, screenings earlier and, and having these sort of other programs, to, to your point, that could minimize right. costs. Right. So if you look at um, healthcare systems in communities, they're taking care of all these patients. These patients are going to show up in their emergency rooms, show up in their urgent care centers, show up at their doctor's offices. And so we have to move to a system where they're paid based on the value across the continuum of care, not go back to a view of the world that you pay in silos. You pay a hospital silo, you pay a nursing home silo, you pay a physician silo. And I think that's what the new replacement to Obamacare will continue to do. Uh, one of the elements of Obamacare that created so much of the backlash was the notion that employers be mandated uh, to provide coverage. Um, do you see that surviving Trump? And, and sort of what are how would you prioritize the changes we can expect under Trump? Yeah, so there are no free lunches. So you can take away the individual and the employer mandate. But if you take that away, you've got to have a way to incent consumers to have health care coverage and to have it continuously. Because you, what you don't want is people staying out of the system and then jumping in when they need health care. That's a very high-cost way to do it. So I think what the Republicans uh, will do is they will incent consumers by what it costs you if you jump in versus what it costs you if you have continuous coverage. So I think there are, al are alternatives to the individual and employer mandate um, that will drive continuous coverage, but we've got we've to have a system where people have coverage. Thank you so much. That was really fascinating. This is definitely one of the most important things to watch going forward as, as the population in the U.S. does get older uh, and as people increasingly uh, depend on the healthcare system uh, going forward. Susan DeVore, CEO of Premier, a company that goes into hospitals around the country and hospital systems and all of the outlying uh, businesses that are related in order to make sure that quality is consistent and that costs are uh, minimized and that it's made more efficient.
for some more direction, I want to bring in Mike Underhill, Portfolio Manager of the Ridgeworth Capital Innovations Global Resources and Infrastructure Fund, to get some sense of this. Mike, is it time to invest in real assets, or is it time, is there going to be sort of a slow uh, waning of that as people cycle into stocks? Well, it's a great question. When I, I look at the world we're in today, we continue to see investors posing questions around four themes, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And you look at volatility, complements of ETFs, other types of structured products. You look at the uncertainty. We've, we've just passed the U.S. election, but we've got other milestones of uncertainty. You've got an OPEC meeting next week. You've got a bunch of different regulatory and policy uh, shocks that potentially we're going to be experiencing over the next 12 months. The complexity in financial structures and the markets and then the ambiguity, you've seen it in the bond market and you've seen it with, with the steepening of the yield curve. So what we're starting to see, both in the equity markets and fixed income markets, you're seeing a need for more real asset income. And so investors, institutional investors and also individual investors are really focusing on what's going on with the reflationary trade. As I said, we, we've gone past the U.S. elections. Now we're, we've removed some of that uncertainty. We look at some of the fiscal policy, things like infrastructure investment, a potential investment package of, of upwards of $1 trillion of infrastructure benefits companies that are in the uh, materials, think base metals and steel. But you know, gold and oil in particular, let's go back to your question. I look at gold, it's more of a, it's a currency play. And you look at the basement of the U.S. dollar and you look at the volatility and uncertainty in the market, gold's a great investment. The other question you had about oil, it's the largest, most liquid commodity in the world. And you look at the, the least amount of spare capacity, the OPEC meeting and, and the positioning going into the OPEC meeting. You know, oil is trending towards 55 a barrel, possibly 60 by the end of the year. Now, Mike, I'm looking at some of the, the giant moves we've seen. Uh, I'm looking at copper right now, up 21%. Uh, rally started before the election, but towards uh, mid-October, it's up that much. Uh, S&P 500 industrial stocks, about 9% uh, this month. Has the optimism about the stimulus spending gotten a little ahead of itself? I, I think you know, all that, very valid points. I think what you're seeing is a few things. You're seeing a, a rotation out of defensive names. So think utilities and, and REITs and, and telco type companies, you know, those equity income plays into more cyclicals. And so names like you look at Southern Copper and, and you look at some of the other names like U.S. Steel, beneficiaries of the industrial and manufacturing renaissance that's going to happen. Have they gotten ahead of themselves? I would say they have not. Actually, when you look at what's gone on, a lot of money's come off the sidelines. You've seen short covering in copper. You've seen short covering in, in steel. You look at iron ore and things like that. Some of these names are up 10, 20, 30 percent in the last month. They're going to take a breather. You're going to see some trades and people do some short-term profit taking. If you look at the longer-term secular trends, there's a, a trend towards this, not only infrastructure stimulus, but you're going to see more manufacturing and production. So I think the trend line is very bullish, particularly for copper and some of the base metals. And when you look at what's going on in China, you know, there, there's an industrial base there that's starting to recover, albeit slowly. Are there any sectors or commodities that uh, have, people have missed that they, they should have loaded into uh, recently, but it, but it haven't taken off? Well, I look at timber. Timber is a great example. If, if you look at a company like Weyerhaeuser, it's a timber REIT. You, know, you, can, you can get access to timber, and when you look at timber as a commodity, you've got deforestation and climate change, and you've got things like in British Columbia, the mountain pine beetles killed one of every three trees in B.C., and so you've got decreasing supply of timber as a commodity. You've got increasing demand. 
You've seen most recently existing home sales 5.6 million. That's that's significantly over the 5.44 expected. And so the autumn revival of housing market is there for not only existing, but you look at single family starts in October about 869,000. So you know, timber, commodity price inflation, decreasing timber as a commodity, increasing demand. So that's the definition of commodity price inflation. Wirehouse is a great way to play it. You get some dividend income while you wait, as well as you get some good upside and leverage to the U.S. Uh, single and multifamily housing recovery. You know, Mike, I- I'm looking at uh, a story right now about the uh, priorities laid forth by President-elect Donald Trump. And this uh, Barron's reporter is noting that he really did not talk about infrastructure spending very much and that currently in the markets, there is sort of a reduction in expectations for what some of his infrastructure plans may be, uh, let alone what he might actually get across. I mean, hasn't one of the the main drivers of the uh, tick up in commodities, with the exception of gold, uh, hasn't it been really driven by these infrastructure expectations and how much could there be uh, a sort of decline in commodities should there be some disappointment on this front? Well, it's, again, good question there. And I would say it's it's not just the infrastructure, the potential infrastructure spending, because I think whether if it was uh, Trump or, or Hillary Clinton, you're looking at infrastructure as being one of the last great ways you can stimulate the economy because you look at monetary policy and artificially low rates, that experiment over the last almost decade, you know, we've run the course on, on monetary policy, fiscal policy is the next logical progression. You've seen it in Australia, you've seen it in the UK over the last 30 years, what they've done with fiscal spending and investing in infrastructure, there's a multiplier effect. And so infrastructure plus some of these tax cuts finance via deficit, you know, infrastructure investment, both economic infrastructure, energy, utilities, transportation, as well as uh, social infrastructure. So think about schools and hospitals. There's a multiplier effect. It creates jobs as well as it, it increases the overall GDP and economic output. Has the base metal commodity trade, has it, has it out, outlasted the short-term trade? I don't think so. I think what you're seeing is there's short-term speculation as well as short covering by some hedge funds in the material space. And admittedly, if you were to look at natural resources and metals in 2015, a year ago, some of those asset classes, some of those companies were down 20, 30, 40%. So the asset class was washed out. You've seen a reversion of the mean, and that started in February, really February 11, 2016, when you saw oil and, and equities sort of hit their technical market bottom. We saw the dead cat bounce. And then you've seen this, this fits and starts of volatility. So it really started natural resources and materials started ramping up in energy in February 16. So this started quite some time ago. But I think, again, you're going to see volatility as well as significant upside. So it's not going to be a smooth ride. Right. Mike Underhill, Portfolio Manager of the Ridgeworth Capital Innovations Global Resources and Infrastructure Fund on the outlook going forward for commodities of all, type. I'm Lisa, of all types. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. Uh, Mike Regan here with me today, a Bloomberg columnist filling in for Pim Fox, who's on vacation. This is Bloomberg. I'm seeing people smile now, clients of mine where I didn't even know 
they had teeth. That is a quote in a story, uh, a truly phenomenal st- story on the Bloomberg by Max Abelson and Dakin Campbell. Uh, I'm Lisa Abramowitz here with Mike Regan filling in for Pim Fox. Max Abelson, uh, really great read. What are you hearing from these Wall Street types at this point? Lisa, first of all, thank you for saying that about the story. Second of all, I have to give full credit to Dakin Campbell, my colleague, for getting that awesome quote. I'm, I always... Always proud of my ability to get good quotes, but that one is like, that was pure Dakin. When he showed that to me, I was so excited because what we were interested in finding out was how these guys are viewing Trump after he spent like months just openly mocking them. You know, Trump Trump called bankers, um, Wall Street people, hedge fund managers, you know, basically the members of like a criminalistic cabal. And, you know, it took them, they told us like basically 20 minutes. You know, they have 20 minutes after the election. They were sad that, that, that Hillary Clinton didn't win, uh, you know, the Clinton supporters, that is. And then they moved on because th- at least they think, you know, they're, they're made in the shade, that their industry is going to be deregulated. Their taxes are going to go down. And uh, it's going to Trump is going to help usher in this like uh, freewheeling new era. So, Max, what are they basically anticipating? Just the complete destruction of Dodd-Frank? Uh, I mean, is that is that a realistic goal? I think that. Anyone uh, on Wall Street or, or or anywhere else who thinks they know what's going to happen, like under President Trump, is is you know really is going to have to be surprised because I feel like we. I was very diplomatic. I was about to. <laughs> right, say, where really. we going it's with just that totally one. crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, look, people he, people have had the wrong idea about this guy for a really long time, going back to when he basically was nearly ruined in the early '90s and managed to bounce back as a sort of like new reality figure, and then of course during the primaries, of course during the presidential run. But I think that to answer your question. And there's an expectation because he's said so that a lot of Dodd Frank is 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 going to disappear, is going to be rolled back. Now, the thing that we also have to talk about that's kind of complicates all this is that he's also said totally contradictory things. Yeah. He suggested that, for example, like uh, Glass Steagall will come back, or or at least that is literally in the Republican platform for for this year. So, what's giving uh, bankers confidence that a Donald Trump administration will be positive for Wall Street? What came up during my interviews um, and and interviews that Dakin Campbell, my colleague, uh, ran, is this. You had as the closing ad for Trump's campaign that remember that image of Lloyd Blankfein uh, and Donald Trump's voiceover was like, you know, a a criminal group is trying to steal your money Um, by the Friday after the election. The team that was in charge of Trump's transition that is in charge of Trump's transition included Goldman Sachs alum Steve Bannon, Goldman Sachs alum Steve Mnuchin. Goldman Sachs alum Anthony Scaramucci. So he is surrounding himself with these people. And I think that's incredibly comforting. And then, you know, even beyond who's going to be Treasury Secretary, uh, Zach Miter and I wrote that long profile about Steve Mnuchin. It's kind of it's kind of feeling like it's going to be him. Treasury Secretary aside, my colleagues, um, Jesse Hamilton and, and Robert Schmidt, have a great story today that folks should read as well. That's basically about Wall Street licking their lips to um, expecting that Tarullo course, at the Fed, is um, going to sort of be out of the unofficial role that he's kind of been in um, over like the last couple of years, and that they'll have a Federal Reserve vice chairman overseeing Wall Street who's like incredibly sympathetic to bankers. That, that's that's what Schmidt's story is but, about. But you know, how much of a surprise really is this? I mean, isn't this always what people suspect, that uh, presidential candidates uh, will sort of talk a hard line on Wall Street, and then they'll get into office and they'll forget everything? I mean, isn't that the sort of classic cliche? You know, the difference is, I think, that Reagan and Bush one and Bush two came in with um, 
you know, nothing but but mostly nice things to say about the financial services industry. Um, this is the old guy over here who would remember if uh, George W. Bush was insulting oh, Wall Street. Uh, you, pointed you had to go there with the old guy. Wow. I meant it. Every, listen, I'm, I turned 32 yesterday. Wow. But I think it's fair to say that even, um, you know, even Obama, even Obama, when he took over at the height of the financial crisis, didn't have nearly the same kind of uh, populist tone that, that, that uh, t- Donald Trump had. So on the one hand. You always expect um, Republicans and, frankly, even Democrats to be much softer on Wall Street because of the financial power of Wall Street. But and and, and then, of course, people are disappointed. But but then on the other, um, you know, Donald Trump is, is is just so inconsistent. It's just so hard to hard to know what's going to come. Max, let me ask you: from all the reporting you've done on Wall Street and Trump, and it's been excellent reporting for a, for sort of a junior rookie reporter like yourself, <laughs> a young a young man like yourself. Have you talked to many bankers who have actually done business with Trump? And is there a difference in perspective from those that have actually done deals with him and, and those that are just you know watching along like the rest of us? You know, I think that um, one real pity is that the Citigroup banker who was really in charge in the early 90s passed away. I think she was actually hit um, riding a bicycle uh, uh, just, that, just yeah. before Trump's run really took off. So well, we're, we don't know. Um, I, I would love to know what, what she has to say about um, – I think it was sort of partially her decision to keep Trump alive, to keep Trump above water, <laughs> um, that, he, that they really could have brought him down. That he, right. he, he had skin in the game, so he basically could have had to go personally bankrupt right. ra- rather, rather than the companies going bankrupt. But, but I have – whenever you speak to people who, who, who have done business with him, they, they speak with, with inc- incredible uh, anger and sadness about, about about the betrayals that, that um, they've had to go through. There are people who, lo- who love him, but there are a lot of people who feel betrayed after spending time working with Donald, Donald Trump. Got some home sales data this morning at 10 a.m. Existing home sales uh, came in higher than expected, just sort of showing that there might just be momentum behind the housing market. But is that momentum about to stall out? I want to bring in Logan Motashami, a senior loan officer at AMC Lending Group, uh, to give us a little bit of color on forward-leading indicators. Logan, when we look at existing home sales that's a backward-looking indicator, correct? Yes, it's a backward-looking indi- uh, indicator. But what, what I would uh, emphasize today on the existing home sales report is that existing home sales are at cycle highs as mortgage demand is at cycle highs. And the housing community, economists, analysts, and everybody has been telling people that low inventory is holding housing back. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, all the data showing uh, demand is at cycle highs and home sales are at cycle highs and existing home sales uh what we've seen is cash buyers have been falling but mortgage demand has been rising but yet mortgage demand is basically back to 1998 levels and there's your issue with the uh, home sales in this cycle is that we don't have that kind of strong demand curve so uh, we shouldn't be using excuses as low inventory or tight lending that are holding sales back based on certain economists metrics Logan, I'm wondering how elastic can we expect that demand to be given the recent uh, jump in uh, interest rates? Mortgage rates have been higher in 2013, 2014, and 2015 
than where we are today. So when we look back at what happened in 2014 was that uh, mortgage rates were working from 4.5% levels. Existing home sales went negative year over year. New home sales had the biggest miss I've ever seen in 20 years in an up cycle. So even though we could see sales be impacted, in reality, we only lost 200,000 homes uh, out of 5.3 million in 2014. When rates were higher in 2015, uh, sales still grew, but the rate of growth was impacted. So I don't think it's going to be as big as people think because demand is low already. So we're not working from an elevated level to where uh, low rates were boosting uh, home sales. This has been the worst demand curve we've ever seen since World War II. Well, let's talk about that. Why has demand for mortgages been so low? Because the fundamental core uh, backdrop you need for a housing market, uh, for a strong housing market, is you need good demographics. We, we have terrible demographics for housing in this cycle. Ages 17 to 29 are massive. Ages 49 to 65 are massive. This is a renting profile. Second, you have no more exotic loans in the system, so that facilitates demand. That's gone. Everybody has to have the ability to own the debt right now. That takes some demand off. Wait until years 2020 to 2024 when you have a higher ages 31 to 34 in the system. See, the millennials are buying, but the millennials that are ages uh, 31 to 34 are buying. Ages 21 to 26 are the biggest in America right now. They're still too young to have a strong housing market. Now, are the the home builders going to adjust to the needs of millennials? Um, is that part of what's keeping things uh, in check to some degree, that there, there there's not as many uh, starter houses being built as perhaps there should be? The builders have been building bigger and bigger homes since 1975. Back in 1975, median square foot was about 1,500. Today, it's over 2,500. They're not building them because they can't really make money off of them. So if you want new home sales to go over 800, 900,000, you're going to need to build smaller homes. This year was the first year that we saw median home sales price fall for builders or for the new home sales market. That is actually a very bullish data line because that means they're building more of the smaller homes, and that's what you would need to get uh, more first-time home buyers in that market. Logan, where do you think that we are in the housing market cycle in the U.S.? Well, it's this has not been a very strong cycle, so I, I wouldn't look at it, economic cycles to work with housing. Uh, 2008 to 2019, we're going to be soft. But in the next decade, you're going to have a massive, massive uh, demographic home ownership uh, age bracket. But also, you're going to have your first-time homeowners be a lot better. We've had over 7 million loans delinquent because we had people with exotic debt. The home buyers now in this cycle are the best I've ever seen in my life. So the move-up buyer is, is just in a much more solid uh, position to move up years down the line. But now it's just been a very soft cycle. Don't expect anything to really change until 2020. And is the sort of maybe not the death, but the definitely uh, reduction in uh, adjustable rate mortgages, um, that's something different in this cycle, right, that we won't have to sort of worry about we those? Have, we, we do not have any exotic recasting debt in scale. There are some home equity lines that are going to recast, but we don't have this massive debt leverage bubble uh, as we did in 2007. But one of the main points is that people forget in 2007, prime age labor force growth peaked and then it declined. We, ha- we didn't have that in the 1980s or the 1990s. That is a very big uh, uh, metric for housing. Right. We're, we're not going to have that problem anymore. Prime age labor force is, is starting to grow again. 
So we have no more adjustable rate risk in terms of in big scale. There's always going to be a few out there, but right. our demographics are starting to get stronger. So the future of housing look actually looks a lot stronger than it did from 2008 to 2016. Logan Motoshami, thank you so much for joining us, Senior Loan Officer at AMC Lending Group, talking about perhaps we shouldn't call it the housing cycle, maybe just the housing plateau. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.